It's Monday, and that so happens to be the day that I like to talk about monsters. Hello, and welcome to Monster Mondays. I'm Jeff Arbuckle, co-host of the podcast Film Seizure, that you can catch right here at FilmSeizure.com or at a number of podcast providers online. It's October now, and it's also the official countdown to the 200th episode of Monster Mondays. Number 200 actually happens on Halloween. So, to celebrate this, why not do something I've yet to do to basically uh, tip my hat to both occasions? This month, we're going to cover five classic silent movies. Now, interestingly, I will only be covering a single film from the United States, and three of these films, including this week's movie, are classics of the German Expressionist era of the Weimar Republic. We begin this month of silent spooks with 1920's The Cabinet of Dr. Caligari. The Cabinet of Dr. Caligari was directed by Robert Wine. Now, while Wine had done some films prior to this and other short films existed that used elements of horror, it's often stated that The Cabinet of Dr. Caligari is really technically the first horror film in the sense that all the typical calling cards of the genre coalesced into a single feature-length film. And gosh, I think I could probably go on forever talking about this movie because Caligari is extremely significant. However, I'm going to try to boil down most of the essence of the background to this film being made. Understand that World War I was a tremendously difficult time and the aftermath and its effect on Germany would be disastrous. Following the war, Germany became, for the first time in its history, a constitutional republic officially named the German Reich, though often it would be unofficially called the German Republic. Now, we know, we now know that era today as the Weimar Republic, as it was referred to by none other than Adolf Hitler in 1929 and became much wider in usage in the 30s. This newly formed republic was incredibly volatile. Early on, there were two big problems, hyperinflation and political extremism. There were attempted power seizures and political assassinations. Uh, to the outside world, Germany was isolated and often kept without diplomatic standing or that many friends as the major powers were still pretty mad at Germany following World War I. Now, while the country struggled, art flourished. This gave birth to German Expressionism. Expressionism as a whole had been a larger artistic movement that began in Northern Europe in the late 19th and early 20th centuries. Expressionism typically is the use of exaggerated curves, angles, and distortion of reality to create a perspective that creates a great emotional impact on the person taking in the art. Expressionism can be found in several mediums, but the Germans, who loved the movement thanks to how they were generally feeling and wanting to express themselves during the turbulent Weimar Republic years, were exceptionally good at using it in film. And just as I mentioned, Expressionism was an excellent way for German filmmakers to, well, express how they were feeling about what was going on in their country. They could use the visual format to twist normal buildings and items into things that you might see in a dream or maybe more accurately, a nightmare. They could use the movement uh, to have their actors gesticulate and emote in larger-than-life ways um, as a way to even more appropriately express an emotion or situation. And oh boy, 
do we see that in Caligari? Now, the Cabinet of Dr. Caligari were writ- was written by two pacifists who had seen the Great War as something pretty darn bad. Hans Janowitz had served as an officer in the war, but the experience left him bitter and it definitely bled into his writing. Carl Meyer actually faked mental illness to stay out of the military, but it put him in a pretty bad other scenario. He was forced into intense psychoanalysis and examination by a military psychiatrist. This left Meyer extremely distrustful of authority. In fact, Meyer's shrink would serve as the template for Dr. Caligari himself. Now, Meyer and Janowitz were originally setting out to create a movie that denounced arbitrary authority. They saw when authority was left to make their own decisions, it would usually come off as pretty brutal and usually not leaving too much rhyme or reason as to why authority acted the way it did. However, Janowitz would later say that after living with the movie for years after its release and thinking back on it, the writers were probably subconsciously really just boiling the idea of theirs down to the exposure of the authoritative power that existed within a human state. However, that claim was a little bit disputed in two different ways. First, film his, a film historian noted that Janowitz never really talked about so-called subconscious intent until decades after the film's release and therefore was probably changing his memories um, around writing it based on how the film was later received. Also, the guy who designed the sets for this film, Herman Varm, uh, he said that he knew for a fact that Meyer certainly had no political intentions behind his contributions to the script. However, the truth is the films of the Weimar Republic were incredibly in- advanced in terms of their visuals and their scripts. Regardless of what the writer's intentions were or anything the director added to the films, when looking back at the time and the other films around each other, You can't help but to see something of a line that can be drawn between the strife of the real world and the characters and actions of the films. Now, right out of the gate in this movie, you're dropped right into a scenario that you have really no idea what's going on. Two men sit on a bench. One is Francis, played by Frederick Fair, and the other is an old man who states that uh, spirits surround everyone and everything. So Francis tells a tale about his home, Holstenval, which is kind of a creepy and shadowy village that seems to have all its buildings kind of clustered around a hill or a mountain. Now, as Francis is first seen talking to this man, uh, he sees his quote-unquote betrothed who's sleepwalking by them. Francis talks about the annual fair in which a bizarre man named Dr. Caligari, played by Werner Krauss, has come seeking a permit to perform at the fair and show off his somnambulist. Now, at the fair, Caligari shows off his somnambulist, Caesar, and the first night of the fair, after Caligari has shown up, the first murder has been discovered. The temperamental clerk who gave Caligari his permit to perform at the fair. It seems as though the clerk was stabbed in the side by a dagger. The next day we learn more about Caesar, and uh, Caesar is 23 years old and has slept 
for his entire 23 years on this earth. However, Dr. Caligari can awaken him for the audience. And that's when people come in to witness what's inside the cabinet of Dr. Caligari. And sure enough, a young man is indeed sleeping upright inside this cabinet. When Caesar is awakened, Dr. Caligari tells the audience that he can now know the past um, and see into the future. So he invites people in the audience to ask his performer these questions. So Alan asks Caesar how long he will live. And the response is uh, he, that he's given is frightening. And that is until the dawn. Now, walking home that night, Alan, uh, who's the friend of Francis, the two boys see and meet a girl named Jane. And she's kind of walking alone in the night. Now, both of these fellows realize that they are in love with the same woman. And they agree to let Jane decide which one of them that she wants to be with. And the two guys will remain friends afterwards. But that night, Alan is attacked in his bed and is stabbed to death, proving that Caesar's prediction was correct. Now, Francis is told of his friend's death and appears as though whoever murdered Alan broke in through the window. Francis tells the police, but begins to investigate the murder himself. He goes to Jane's house and gets the help of her father, Dr. Olson, and he tells Francis that he will get uh, police authorization to check out this somnambulist. And that night, the cops arrest a man who happens to have a knife very similar to what was used to murder the two victims previously. While at Caligari's inspecting Caesar, Olson and Francis get the special edition of the newspaper and read about how the murderer had been apprehended. Dr. Caligari seems to be pretty relieved and also quite happy about these developments. Olson, Francis, and the police question the apprehended burglar who states that he had nothing to do with the first two murders. It is true that he did try to kill this old lady who screamed for help and got him arrested. And yes, he was going to use the same knife to throw suspicion off himself. Uh, but this leaves Francis confounded. Jane goes to the fair to look for her father after he hasn't come home for a long time. However, she comes across Dr. Caligari, who gets a devilish idea and invites her in to see Caesar. And when Caesar sees Jane, that pretty much makes her the next target as revenge against her father. But when he goes to her place to kill her, he falls in love with her once he sees her sleeping face. When Jane wakes up, Caesar grabs her and makes off with her through the streets of the village. Chased by an angry mob, he drops her and attempts to escape. However, um, Francis was spying on Caligari, and when Jane shouts Caesar's name as being the one that uh, she saw in her bedroom, um, once she basically wakes up from having fainted, Francis can't really believe it. He spied on the pair the entire time. However, after seeing the other guy still locked up in the jail, he leads the police to Caligari, who allows them to investigate uh, Caesar's little cabinet, or his cabinet, and they find a mannequin of Caesar waiting for them inside. Caligari flees to an insane asylum, and Francis follows. Now, Francis asks the doctors at the asylum if they have a patient named Caligari. They say no, but they refer him to the director of the asylum, who is revealed to be the very person that Francis is looking for. The other doctors at the asylum help Francis investigate 
while the director sleeps. And they learn of an 18th century story about a man named Caligari who uh, had a somnambulist named Caesar who toured fairs in Italy and how murders seemed to follow the pair. Caligari had complete control over Caesar and everything that our antagonist of this film has done has been pretty much a copycat of the historical Caligari. He found somebody who has synabulism who was brought to this asylum and placed the the patient under hypnosis and basically bent him to his will. They later find Caesar, and when they bring him back to the asylum, the director's reaction to seeing Caesar again gives away that he's truly the reason for the various murders. They put the director in a straitjacket and drag him off where he never again leaves his cell. In the present day, Francis tells the old man that he had been telling the story to, to never let Caesar tell him his fortune or he'll die. And it turns out that, in fact, in a twist of this movie, Francis, Caesar, and Jane were actually patients in the asylum, and the entire story was fabricated by Francis. Caligari really is the director of the asylum, and Francis violently attacks him until he is restrained by the orderlies and thrown into the very same cell that, in his story, the director was thrown into. The director then says he knows how... Uh, he can cure Francis, and a shot focuses in on the doctor before fading out completely. So let's talk about the three things that I like about one of the most influential films of the 20s, The Cabinet of Dr. Caligari. First, I watched the 2014 restoration that Kino Lorber did with the surviving elements that existed from multiple sources and having the tinting reapplied to the various shots and scenes. It also had a newly recorded soundtrack, and this soundtrack is fantastic. It's part organ, part synthesized, part strings. Uh, it, it's really good at setting that tone. And yeah, I'm probably going to say that a lot this month. Tone. Tone is such an important part of this whole movie, but also of the whole silent era, particularly when it comes to horror films. Um... That said, the music for this restoration is beautiful. It's classical while being cinematic. There's not a moment of this movie that doesn't feature the music, as we need it in silent films. But the music speaks just as much dialogue as the title cards and the actors that we can't hear. This might sound kind of dumb, but the music puts us, puts me in the place of a European village even more than the German dialogue cards do when we see them in this movie. Secondly, Werner Krauss is spectacular as Dr. Caligari. He seems to almost play the part with glee. He's expressive in his eyes and his devilish grins. Uh, He's just fantastic as the villain of our six-act story. You can tell he's throwing himself into this role and having a blast. And it's long been tradition that playing a heavy is far more fun and far more appealing to actors than always being the good guy. There, But truthfully, there is one thing I do want to say about Werner Krauss. Um, and it's kind of unfortunate and pretty uncomfortable. At the time that this movie came out, he was one of Germany's greatest actors. And he'd, he's been a huge star on stage and then in film, particularly in the 20s. However, he was also an unapologetic anti-Semite. When Hitler came to power, he was a supporter of the Nazi party and even became very friendly with Italian dictator Mussolini 
and the propagandist Joseph Goebbels. Um, he was forced out of Austria after the war um, and was forced to never be able to act in German media ever again. But in the early 50s, he was granted the ability to have German citizenship. And he would go on to die in obscurity due to that, you know, to being banned from ever appearing in German films again. But all of that said, he's brilliant as Caligari in this movie. I mean, he sells every single second of his role when on screen. And thirdly, is it even possible to talk about this movie without bringing up the incredible sets and design of the visuals? There's a use of of, uh, vignetting that is already cramping the square format screen and it makes it seem like people are being crushed by the frame itself. However, that's nothing compared to the larger set design. First, the town of uh, Holstenval is cramped and the streets wind in almost spirals. Um, as people go to the fair, they are cramped in what should be a large outdoor event, but they're packed in like rats. The corners of the buildings and the spinning carousels are practically hanging over the people going through this fair. Of course, yes, the buildings twist and turn and lean in unusual angles because this is ex- the German expressionism of, uh, of the time. But the streets almost come off as mazes or like you're inside a house of mirrors where the mirrors haven't been put up yet. It's so bizarre and sets your mind off its kilter almost immediately. Uh, Then you begin to get a little more claustrophobic when you go inside one of those buildings. The buildings use perspective to show hallways or corridors of rooms kind of going off into the distance, but it's just painted onto the set and people are standing or sitting in those cramped spaces and look like they are uncomfortably crammed into a box as they are positioned in what looks like, well, it it just does look like they're positioned in a small box. It's a beautifully crafted set and not one that you would ever be able to forget once you've seen it. That wraps up this week's Monster Mondays. You can catch new episodes of Monster Mondays each Monday afternoon at FilmSeizure.com. Don't forget to follow Film Seizure at Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And subscribe to Film Seizure to get both the Film Seizure podcast and Monster Mondays at your favorite podcast providers as well as YouTube. You can also check out my website, bmovieenema.com, to read new articles every Friday morning. So there we have it. Episode 196 of Monster Mondays is in the can. We only have four more to go until we hit number 200. And next week, we are going to go to Sweden for a movie that just celebrated its 100th birthday last month, Hexen. So until next week, stay spooky.